If I could nominate one candidate for the biggest obstacle to world peace and social harmony, it would be naive realism because it is so easily ratcheted up from the individual to the group level. My group is right because we see things the way they are. Those who disagree are obviously biased by their religion, their ideologies, and their own self-interest. Naive realism gives us a world full of good and evil. And this brings us to the most disturbing implication of the sage's advice about hypocrisy. Good and evil do not exist outside our beliefs about them. <sighs> Welcome to another momentary mindfulness. Woo! So, if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome. You know, if you're old enough, you'll remember this uh, radio station had this lady, Delilah, on. And every time I do momentary mindfulness, and it's just me in my office, and I'm kind of like borderline just exhausted. I feel like my voice sounds a lot like Delilah. <laughs> like just this like, Delilah. <laughs> it's just kind of like this real monotone. Kind of like, this is what's going on. Anyways. So if this is your first time, welcome. We're doing things a little different. We're going through a book called The Happiness Hypothesis by Jordan. Jonathan had it, hate it. I don't know. Still haven't looked that one up. And um, it's a great book. And this is no uh, absolute representation of the book at all. So if you want to read it and find out what's really between the pages, you ought to do that yourself. But essentially, it's given me some direction, something to think about, to talk about, to uh, elaborate on, etc., etc. And so last week, we talked about the fault of others. And about how it's so easily to, to look at the speck in someone else's eye while we have this giant fucking piece of wood right hanging out of ours. <laughs> and it's, it is, man. I do it all the time. Everybody does it at some point. And it's just like, ah, the more I catch myself nowadays, the more I'm just kind of disgusted by it. But anyways, so we got about halfway through the chapter and I realized very quickly that there was just too much meat. And the, I feel like the back end of this chapter takes a hard turn. Too, and I was like, ah, I think it'd be cool to kind of go over this one. And so I thought with like this nice piano music, we could talk about Satan and how much he satisfies. <laughs> I love when I saw this as like a little headline and, uh, you know, how some books have those like little tiny miniature sections within the chapters. That's what this book's like. And so he honestly did such a good job at this little part. I feel like that it would be really, uh, it would be satisfying for me to maybe just read you some of my favorite parts because I feel like that if I were to try to re-say this, I would just fuck it up and it's just got so much in it, you know? And so one day in 1998, I received a handwritten letter from a woman in my town whom I did not know. The woman wrote about how crime, drugs, and teen pregnancy were all spiraling out of control. Society was going downhill as Satan spread his wings. 
The woman invited me to come to her church and find spiritual shelter. As I read her letter, I had to agree with her that Satan had spread his wings, and but only to fly away and leave us in peace. You see, the late 90s was the golden age. The Cold War was over. Democracy and human rights were spreading. And here in the United States, crime and unemployment had plummeted. The stock market was climbing ever higher. And the ensuring prosperity was promising to erase the national debt. Even cockroaches were disappearing from our cities because of widespread use of roach poison combat. So what on earth was she talking about? When the moral history of the 90s is written, it might be titled, Desperately Seeking Satan. You see, with peace and harmony ascendant, Americans seem to be searching for subtle villains. We tried drug dealers, but then the crack epidemic waned, 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 waned. The child abductors who were all usually one of uh, the parents. The cultural right vilified homosexuals, the left vilified racists. And I lost my place. Homophobes! As I thought about these various villains, including the older villains of communism <laughs> and Satan himself, I realized that most of them shared three properties. One, they are invisible. You see, you can't identify the evil one from appearance alone. Their evil spreads by contagion, making it vital to pr protect impressionable young people from infection. For an example, from communist ideas, homosexual teachers, or stereotypes on television. And the villains can be defeated only if we all pull together as a team. It became clear to me that people that want to believe they are on a mission from God, or that they are fighting for some more secular good, like animals, or fetuses, or women's rights, and you can't have much of a mission without good allies and a good enemy. The problem of evil has bedeviled many religions since their birth. If God is all good and all powerful, either he allows evil to flourish, which means he's not all good, or else he struggles against evil, which means he's not all powerful. Religions have generally chosen one of the three re resolutions of this paradox. One solution is straight dualism. There exists a good force and an evil force. They are equal and opposite. I don't know why my, uh, what do you call it, the way I'm talking? <laughs> I don't know right now, guys. I am exhausted just reading this book. So whatever, I'll get back to it with my freaking country accent. I don't know. That's what I meant to say, accent. How the hell did I get an accent while reading this book? It's crazy. Anyways, they exist a good force and an evil force, and they are equal and opposite, and they fight eternally. Humans, <laughs> human beings are part of the battleground. <laughs> I don't know why this is becoming funny to me. We were created part good, part evil, and we must choose which side we'll be on. 
This view is clearest in religions emanating from Persia and Babylonia. Such as, and these two words sound badass, by the way, but I don't know how to pronounce them. Such as Zoroastrianism, and the view influenced Christianity as long-lived doctrine called Manicism. A second revolution. Oh, sorry. God dang it. It's a redneck accent. Make me, I, I can't even, I mean, I can't even like talk. So the second resolution for this is straight monism. There is one God. He created the world as it needs to be. And evil is an illusion. A view that dominated religions that developed in India. These religions hold that the entire world, or at least its emotional grip upon us, is an illusion. And that enlightenment consists of breaking out of the illusion. The third approach, taken by Christianity, blends monism and dualism in a way that ultimately reconciles the goodness of the power of God with the existence of Satan. This argument is so complicated that I cannot understand it nor apparently can many Christians who, judging by what I hear on gospel radio stations in Virginia, seem to hold a straight mechanism, worldview, whatever the hell that one is, according to which God and Satan are fighting an internal war. In fact, desperate. The diversity of theological arguments made in different religions, concrete representations of Satan, demons, and other evil entities are surprisingly similar across continents and eras. Whew. Damn. Glad you made it through that with me. Sometimes I have a hard time reading when I have this kind of voice. But seriously, I often think about this. You know, there is that quote that talks about that nothing is good and evil until you think it is. And that mind boggles me sometimes, you know, because we're quite lost in a story no matter what story is you're telling yourself, if it's religious-based or just whatever-based or reality-based, it's kind of true, right? That like we really are just kind of molecules flying around on a rock and like we have crafted these, these webs that we entangle ourselves in, right? It's crazy to think about. And he even talks about it in the next little piece called Finding the Great Way says man is an animal suspended in webs of significance that he himself has spun. God, I love that. It's super sobering. That is, the world we live in is not really one of made of rocks, trees, and physical objects. It is a world of insults, opportunities, status symbols, betrayals, saints, and sinners. All of these are human creations, which though real in their own way are not real in the way that rocks and trees are real these human creations are like fairies they exist only if you believe in them it's kind of like the matrix right a consensual hallucination and the first step to breaking out of that reality is realizing that it's a game and we shouldn't take it so seriously right right (laughs) so the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about this great way and even how to use reciprocity even in like 
an argument between a spouse or a friend. It's pretty cool how like you can change your, your perspective with reciprocity. And he talks about, see if I can skim through and kind of get the gist that, uh, yeah. So when you, when you come out of an argument, right, you could say, I should not have done X and I can see why you felt Y. And then by the power of reciprocity, the other person will likely feel a strong urge to say, yes, I was really upset by X, but I guess I shouldn't have done P so I can see why you felt Q. So that was definitely really cool and worth mentioning. And it kind of wraps up to say, but sometimes by knowing the mind structure and strategies, we can step out of this ancient game of social manipulation and enter into a game of our choosing by seeing the log in our own eye, you can become less biased, less moralistic, and therefore less inclined towards argument and conflict. You can begin to follow the perfect way, the path to happiness that leads to acceptance, which is really what this whole next chapter is about, the pursuit of happiness. Looks pretty badass and exciting. I hope you're enjoying this. I am, man, to be able to go back through this book and it's re-encouraging me and, and, and reigniting a lot of things in me. I think that what's so cool about like, quote unquote, mindfulness is that, you know, we can only focus on some things at a time at once, right? And so it's kind of nice to come back and refocus on things that we used to be focused on because we always end up seeing it from a different perspective. You know, even as a pastor, that was the one thing people were always like, the Bible's alive. And I'm like, well, kind of, kind of, but really what it is is that you are alive and you are constantly changing. Therefore, your perceptions are constantly changing. Therefore, the next time you reread something you've already read before, you'll get more out of it and you'll perceive it differently, right? And that's kind of what's so cool about going through maybe even some of these basic concepts for even you listening. Maybe you're like, man, I've been, I've been knowing this shit for years. About time you catch up. It's about fucking time you catch up, boy. <laughs> Anyways, I appreciate you guys. And I uh, hope you have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening. And, you know, if you want to tell somebody share something I appreciate it have a good week peace and love digital friends <laughs>